Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. For this episode, we're going to start addressing some of the listener requests. This one is relatively easy. Some of the other ones are kind of complicated and will require maybe multiple episodes. But this one, let's see if we can do it in one episode. As always, though, the question is more complicated than it seems. We tend to ask one question because we believe that it's going to point to the answer we seek. But in reality, as human beings, we actually start with the answer in our mind and then formulate the question. As a teacher, then, it's important to be able to recognize the true question, which is the wondering or the bewilderment that acted as a catalyst for the mental solution that generated the verbal question. If you don't do that, in truth, you're not really helping the deshi. So the question for this episode is, what kind of physical conditioning should one do for Aikido training? It's easy to start listing things, but then you're not doing what I just spoke about. Also, one of the goals of this podcast is to help people particularly my deshi, but anybody who's listening, help them gain the tools by which they can investigate and produce their own practice. When we start with a question and we end with an answer, what goes unsaid is the context. It appears that the world or our practice can be experienced in a kind of binary fashion. But whenever you do that, you end up working within assumptions or a set of assumptions. And no growth is actually possible. What you have instead is a reification of the status quo. So many of us from this perspective, feign the asking of a question within the masquerade of seeking growth, but when the question is binary, it's actually just a reification of the status quo, which makes it impossible to become other unto ourselves. It makes transformation impossible. 
So all of our questions should have at least three components to them. There's the phrasing of the question and the phrasing of the answer, but both should be posited within a third aspect, which is going to be most easily understood as a very specific context. So when we ask, what are the best ways of conditioning our bodies for Aikido, the unsaid context there is, what is Aikido? It's a very simple formula when you add the context in there. So let's postpone what we mean by Aikido for now, at least physically. And let's look at the kind of formula that we're using. We can define it very simply as an operational physical conditioning or a functional physical conditioning. So the question would be, or is going to be asked from the point of view what is the function of the body or what are the operations of the body within Aikido. And already within that question, you have an assumption that's going unsaid, which is some sort of division between the body and the mind. And we know historically the Budo paradigm does not hold that distinction. For the time being, it might be sufficient to separate the mind-body, but if we're going to get to the heart of, matter, heart of the matter, we're going to want to stick it back in. So let's start with Aikido body mechanics. I think you can reverse engineer the techniques and end up with the conclusion that Aikido body mechanics from either a technical point of view, meaning kihon waza, or even from an application point of view, meaning jiwaza, you are looking at a overall concern with physical efficiency. And this physical efficiency is understood in terms of force output and force reconciliation. And when you ask the question of efficiency, I think you're going to end up eventually with colloquially an understanding of how to do more with less. 
such that being able to achieve more with less, all things being equal, is going to be considered more efficient than not doing so. In other words, and this is a martial universal, there always remains an economic concern in combat. I think if you go back to Sun Tzu, there would be no Sun Tzu without that. In other words, if it was just a matter of defeating the opponent, you would have just said that. But there are underlying concerns that are economic in nature, whereby on the one hand you can actually defeat the opponent but still lose, and on the other hand, You can never win without having some sort of economic underlying concern. So there's questions of economy and efficiency. And when you do that, in modern terms, we're going to be looking for an organizational or a biomechanical or a kinesiological or, a, or all three utilization of the physical form. In short, you cannot just move any old way nor can you move a given way any old time. When you understand that, now you have a sense of what is functional and what is operational. So what would functional conditioning or operational conditioning be? It would be conditioning that would lend itself to this efficiency and to this economy which is geared towards maximum force output with minimum expenditure and maximum force reconciliation with minimum expenditure. Let's call that point A. If you pull back a little, there's a broader context because there's a practical nature to training in and of itself. And that is, all things being equal, the largest contributor to the acquisition of skill, and let's here we can say point A or point one, that first point would be one of the ways that we note skill. So pulling back, the largest contributor to skill is going to be training time. And in previous episodes, in my experience, 
and which seems to be consistent with all kinds of schools where performance is the measure by which all training is judged, you're looking at about four to six hours a day. This four hours as a minimum is going to get you in the ballpark to be able to perform. Again, we can contextualize performing. And again, we can use functional or operational as our context. So performing here is the ability to maintain the integrity of our art under spontaneous and adverse conditions. It's a noting of two things. One, there's a spontaneous component to performance. And two, there is a degradation element to applications under real life, meaning stress, contest, the spontaneity of the opponent leads to a technical degradation in our own form. Well, spontaneity and technical integrity under adverse conditions require this four to six hours a day of training just to get in the ballpark. Of course, there are training methodologies that you use in particular, but those methodologies prove useless if you're not doing that four to six hours a day, which is why we see that, as I said, in all schools where performance counts. Well, to train four to six hours a day, that is going to require a certain level of physical conditioning, as it would to do anything four to six hours a day. And that's a very simple experiment to run. A story from my past when I was transferring from one sport to another, going from speed skating to cycling, and looking for another invitation to the Olympic Training Center in a new sport, it came about at a time when I was graduating from high school. I postponed the university to take more seriously my dreams of being an Olympic hopeful in a second sport. And I imagined without school that I was going to be able to up my training to eight hours a day, which is not unusual for cyclists. Remember, my four to six are your minimum time frame. 
but it's not unusual for cyclists, road cyclists, to train up to eight hours here or there each week. And I knew other competitors who were already doing that. And I thought myself able to do what they were doing. So the first day, no school, no more high school. Plan my day. Set my training schedule. I go out. I do the first day. And this was only an extra two hours on the road. Second day, a lot less motivated. Bumped it down to seven hours. Third day, couldn't even get out of bed. What I learned from that experience is that It's not as easy as just setting a schedule. There are physical matters that must be addressed. And at a certain point, there are emotional, intellectual, psychological matters that also have to be addressed. And the two are very much interrelated. Meaning, the more physically I'm challenged, the sooner I will be psychologically challenged. As we said earlier, this is why you really can't separate the mind and body. So if you want to get yourself in that ballpark of performance, and you're going to try to do these four to six hours, you can easily go ahead and try it. And you will see there's a toll and it has to be paid. You can't just do it. You can't just write out a schedule. And the more fit you are, the more likely you can do that schedule. As I said, the more fit you are, the later in the process you become psychologically or spiritually challenged. And it's important when you're trying to build up hours and days and weeks, months and years to whenever possible push those psychological challenges further and further back in your training regimen. There's other reasons for that, and maybe we'll go into that later. But there's also just the physical wear and tear. To be able to push those psychological challenges back further also means that your body is less likely to be injured by the training, by the repetition the repeated utilization of tissues and bone. You can suck it up more. 
the better you are in shape, the more you can endure. The more you can endure, the more you can do. The more you can do, the better you are at performing. There's another aspect to this. I'm going to say there's two, two points here. One, the more physically fit you are, when you're trying to do four to six hours a day of training, the less likely you'll be injured. Unfit people will, experiencing, will experience injury more often under that kind of regimen, which means time away from that regimen, which means less hours trained, which means less performance capacity. Depending on the injury, it may also be the end of your performance aspirations. But the two other components are you develop a body wisdom, which a lot of people don't have nowadays. They don't understand what hurts or why, and they don't understand how to heal what hurts. So training on a regular basis Preparing yourself for four to six hours a day of repeated physical exertion will consequentially produce a body wisdom, which is very important. What you see in athletes who do this is most of the time they're able to catch injuries before they happen or manage them through their training and heal themselves. It's only when they can't that they go to a physician or a therapist. It's something beyond their skills, but most of that is pretty serious. And even when the physician takes over, their body wisdom is used to enhance the physician's treatment, making healing faster. And that, that's the second point. You can prevent injuries, you can manage injuries, and this last point is you can heal faster. And that's very important because you can't get away from the performance equation. You need the four to six hours. This allows you to continue them, continue them or to get back to them quicker. So for these reasons, physical conditioning is very important to Aikido. Let's go a little deeper into the first point, the functional or operational aspect. It's true that Aikido at its apex is not reliant upon 
what we will call here an external use of muscles. Well, let's, let's start defining that a little bit more. It's very common for people to say that, but they're not really looking at what is going on and I think it's a result of not understanding what's going on. And I think you have to remember what we said already. I think the second point, which is I need to be physically fit in order to do the four to six hours a day, that should trump everything. Just get yourself in shape. But I think the question is stemming from a, a little bit of a deeper aspect and coming from the point of view that it just doesn't seem right that since Aikido does not use external muscles, I therefore can remain and should remain weak. That premise right there i believe is in this is the seed that gave birth to the question but the answer is not as simple as yes that's right let's go a little bit deeper because there's still a functional and operational context And we want to know that. So when we talk about external muscular usage, we have to, from the get-go, understand that it is impossible to move ourselves physically without utilizing our musculature. So that's not really what we mean when we say external muscular usage. And let's put in a caveat here. And let's make our functional, operational, slash performance context combat to competing against another human being wherein victory over said human is the goal. And let's look at our notion of economy and efficiency. There is nothing in economy and efficiency that says the using of one's bicep is in and of itself incorrect. Within a given context, that might be the most economical, efficient way of either emitting force or reconciling force. So a saying that I always repeat to my deshi is, don't discredit a strong bicep in a fight. And we would be fools to do so.
so when we talk about external, what I believe people are trying to get at is an isolated usage of musculature. And this stands in contrast to an organized usage of musculature. Isolated muscle use can be, under the context, your most efficient and economical use of your physical form. It cannot and should not be dismissed as taboo or even as a departure from the art. It is one means of either generating force or reconciling force. It is not in and of itself inefficient, non-economical. It is not in and of itself incorrect. It is the context in which it is being used. And the context, again, is one of economy and efficiency. What people see as they correct, let's say, a new deshi who's using, as they say, their shoulders or their arms, and it just looks wrong and it feels wrong and it's unskilled and it's a beginner mistake is that within that context, the isolation of the arm or the shoulders from the rest of the physical form cannot be considered economical or efficient because of the capacity to use a more organized physical form for force output or force reconciliation. And to put this crudely, if the conditions are such that you're forced to and that you can just swing your fist as hard as you can at someone's chin and knock them out, then good. You did it. That's efficient. That's economical. That meets the criteria of Aikido. So again, all this to say that this muscular muscle isolation or muscle in muscle independence, however you want to say it, muscle deorganized from the larger frame, however you want to say it, is just one way of force output and force reconciliation among others. There's nothing wrong with it. And in that light, for example, having a stronger arm than a weaker arm is better. You'll be able to generate more force. You'll be able to reconcile more force with a stronger arm than a weaker arm. And for that reason, again, it is wrong to say that Aikido does not use 
muscles and therefore you should not train to get stronger. But I think what people are really trying to get at is in the context that goes unsaid. So most people use Aikido Kihon Waza as their only combat context. Which is strange because Kihon Waza implies that it's an idealized controlling of time and space, which means by default, this is not combat. It is a simulated form or ritual for the purposes of studying particular things and for cultivating particular things. It cannot and should not be universalized. When we look at Aikido Kihonwaza, they are designated in such a way that they allow the practitioner or they guide the practitioner towards an efficiency and an economy that supports an organized utilization of the physical form. Meaning, they are a kind of architecture where when, when performed correctly, all things being equal, there will never be a time where the most economical and efficient thing you can do is a muscle isolation. It is precisely because of this that they're geared towards cultivating another way of generating force and reconciling force. So to keep things simple, let's just stick with these two ways. External, we already talked about it. It's a perfectly legitimate way of generating force and reconciling force. And under certain conditions may be the most economical and efficient way of doing so. And then the second way will kind of make it antithetical in some way, or just use a kind of dichotomous definition. I labeled it already organized, or you can say not external or not isolated. To maintain this organization, requires 
a certain level of conditioning. And that alone already takes us out of the assumption that because Aikido does not use external or isolated muscle utilization, therefore we don't have to be strong. We're already away from that. As we said, I need this conditioning in order to do the four to six hour requirement in order to achieve the performance capacity. And then two, there are times, if we're looking at things combatively, where a stronger arm is going to be more ideal than a weaker arm. The maintenance of this organization is going to be more achievable for a fit body than an unfit body. It's going to be more achievable for a strong body than a weak body. And as we already said, we'll stick the mind back in there. It is going to be more achievable by a mind that is capable of more tenacity and integrity, less likely to be challenged earlier by a weak body. Then I would add to that, while that organization is not entirely dependent upon physical conditioning, the learning of that organization, the ability to maintain that organization, the acquiring of that skill, is much easier to do from a strong body than from a weak body. And again, if you are expecting to perform with that organization, again, it is much easier to do from a strong body with a later challenged mind or spirit than a weak body with an earlier challenged mind or spirit. This is the context for me for physical conditioning. Pulling out some premises here. I want a conditioning that allows me to train four to six hours a day without injury. I want a conditioning that allows me to develop a body wisdom that allows me to manage injuries and to heal, heal quickly from them. I want a conditioning that assists me in maintaining an organized physical form meant to 
generate force output and a force reconciliation capacity. I want a conditioning that allows for an external or an isolated utilization of my musculature to be used when it is efficient and economical. I want a conditioning that pushes back the mental and spiritual challenging of my being under daily training and within performance under adverse conditions. And so I want a conditioning that also helps me develop a mental and spiritual grit. And if you take two Aikidoka, let's say one version is you, where you partake in this kind of conditioning and another version of you where you don't, your practice will not at all lead to the same result. You're looking at two different arts and two different beings. I, as an Aikidoka, I wouldn't even know because I don't want to know what an Aikido is that does not take this on. From my point of view, whatever that is, I could not consider it Aikido. I'm not insulted or see it as an affront for someone who calls it Aikido. The name's never been important to me, but whatever that is, I don't do it. Whatever it has to say has nothing to do with me. It's something else. So let me say nothing more about that. And let's move on. The particular exercises that I have found that lend themselves to this concern with conditioning, as I've outlined, are those exercises that prioritize strength but do so in a particular way. So there are many ways of just trying to make yourself stronger. 
but we're looking for a conditioning that lends itself to this organization. And much of this organization and the end performance that we seek is related to coordination and performance and, I'm sorry, coordination and mobility. And the reason why that has to be brought up is because uh, strength, an over-concern with strength alone, separate from coordination and mobility, can actually lead to an absence of coordination and mobility. Let's take a detour here in exercise science. It is very common in this world today to claim to know more than we know. I think if you look at nutritional science, you can see that. There's so many views. And as individuals, we try different things, we get limited results. But there's still this idea that we know what's going on. And in truth, we don't. And the same thing applies to strength cultivation. A hardcore scientific explanation, one that can establish cause and effect regarding strength gains is just not there. Like nutritional science, what we really have are just ballparks. You get yourself in the ballpark, you're better off being in there than outside. And the goal of the athlete who's interested in strength gains is get yourself in the ballpark and then start fine-tuning yourself. Again, the context is for your own functional operational needs. So much of our strength science is really not science at all. It's really empirical. This seems to work. And this seems to work for the most people. Under these conditions and towards these goals. So for those who don't know, I am 53 years old. And the conditioning routine 
and regiment that we use at our dojo is empirical based with the above-mentioned context in mind. There's some scientific basis for it, but in the end, a kind of scientific explanation for why it works is unknown because ultimately that science does not exist. So we are looking for the results as has been described. What's working? What works? And I bring this up because, as I mentioned already, there's some sort of ratio between strength, coordination, and mobility, and you can tip the scale over such that strength is radically outweighing the other two components and by extension then you lose your functional and operational strength as we described it already. My premonition is Strength is the same, or let's say the cultivation of strength is utilizing the same and perhaps the only catalyst for transformation that does exist, which is I'm going to apply a stress to generate an adaptation. So by utilizing the weight as a resistance, I generate a stress which generates for some unknown reason, again, we don't know why this is there, it generates an adaptation in my body that allows me to be able to move that stress easier the next time I wish to move it. Again, there's a lot of theories, but when you get down to it, it's just a, a thing we accept. The ancients had an answer for it. It's the nature of the universe. It's what it does. There's an application of yang. It creates a yin. You have a stress, you have a status quo, this is my given strength output. The stress over, overrides the status quo, the status quo must yield to the stress, and now you have an adaptation. But what seems to be empirically part of the adaptation process is that tissues and joints tend to adopt a kind of fused physiology by which they can support more weight. But in that fusion, 
reduce mobility and coordination, which I'm, you can understand as dexterity, the conscious, a conscious dexterity. So what we do is we apply the empirical, proven techniques for generating strength, which is just a utilization of the stress adaptation model. But we're very mindful that strength was not our end goal. This organization was our end goal. And I cannot maintain that organization under performance conditions when the adaptive tissue, tissue fusion occurs and limits my mobility or my dexterity cannot be done. So as a pointer on just strength gains, I think some of the most empirically valid theories and practices on strength development is Mark Ripito's starting strength. I would look into that. Just be mindful that his goal is, in the end, a little bit different from our goal. So the question is, is goal, or the answer is going to be, how do I use the stre stress adaptation catalyst to generate strength? Okay, yeah, I can use Ripito's system. And we'll go into that for a little bit here. So he's looking at overall strength in the human body. And on the one hand, it's a very simple application of increase the resistance. In other words, increase the stress. And you do that progressively over time so that you continue to generate a greater and greater adaptation known as strength. In the same way as he's trying to increase the stressor so as to increase the level of adaptation, The more of your body that is experiencing the stressor, the greater or the more of your body is, gener is generating the adaptation and therefore the greater the adaptation. This is why, for example, he favors deadlifts and squats over barbell or over dumbbell curls. Dumbbell curls are an isolated 
stressor aimed at the biceps, whereas lifting something off the floor is going to generate a stressor spread out over more tissue, and therefore it's going to be a greater stressor, and therefore the adaptation, i.e. strength, is going to be greater. It's also why, for example, he favors shoulder presses over bench presses, even though he will coach people in bench pressing. The shoulder press, while seemingly favoring the deltoids trap area, that weight is actually over your head and all of those tissues are now involved in the stressor adaptation cycle. So your strength conditioning, or the one that we use, is following this suit. All things being equal, the more weight you have as resistance, the greater the strength gains. And two, the more tissues involved in overcoming the resistance, i.e. the weight, the more tissues adapted, therefore the greater the adaptation, i.e. strength gain. So this is going to be your deadlifts, your squats, your shoulder presses. Now Ripito goes further in that, in that he doesn't just do these lifts any old way, and again, nor do we, because our organization at the performance level is of a particular kind. And there's a possibility of duplicating that organization in these lifts. So Ripito advocates what he calls midfoot. He, he creates a midfoot sagittal plane. And the idea is to lift the weight along this plane. You're doing deadlifts, you're doing squats, you're doing shoulder presses. You're lifting that weight along that plane. In his understanding this generates a utilization of what is called the rear posterior chain and so the these are the larger muscle groups in the body and as these become conditioned then the body is able to perform better in whatever arena it is because there's not really an arena where there isn't some level of organization because whatever the sport or the activity organization is always relevant to efficiency or form. So these lifts, the deadlift, the squat, and the shoulder press, as long as they are utilizing the midfoot line, is going to condition those tissues. The rear posterior chain, the rear posterior chain lends itself to posture and other types of organization that always seem to be relevant to form because 
form is always relevant to force output and force reconciliation. So we utilize this same technique. Coincidentally, but biomechanically, it should not be a surprise. Force that is not using isolated musculature is going to involve an organization that, that reconciles force down into the midfoot. So if we use the normal or the common internal strength discourse, uh, basically the, the force output of the adversary is going to be grounded or lowered through, let's say, the limbs down ultimately to that midfoot portion of our body where that force is collected and then eventually emitted outwardly, force output. So the force reconciliation happens along the same midfoot line, which then obviously engages the same rear posterior chain and then utilizes that in a force output manner. And you now have a force output that was not dependent upon a isolated use of a limb or a particular muscle group or muscle. So when you do these lifts and you concern yourself with the midfoot plane, you not only strengthen the rear posterior chain, but you will have to condition all those other tissues that help stabilize the moving of the resistance along that plane. And it's all those other tissues that are very, very important for this internal strength because they lend themselves to the organization of the body. When you understand your conditioning in this way, and this is what we have done, you are, in essence, any way that you can, just as with any technique that you can, send energy down the midfoot plane, you are conditioning the body for disorganization. So all of Kihon Waza can be seen and should be seen as conditioning exercises. But if you're not able to send force down this midfoot plane in a manner consistent with the internal strength discourse, you're not actually conditioning those tissues, nor are you developing that coordination. You see a lot of people who do do the four to six hours a day of training, but they do not 
condition the body this way because they do not organize or utilize the body in this way. And you're just looking at externally strong people. Those tissues tend to degrade as does the utilization of those tissues for force output or force reconciliation. It tends to degrade with age. Whereas this other organization and the tissues involved in, the, in this organization and the utilization of those tissues toward this organization you don't tend to see the same level of performance degradation as the practitioner ages. You tend to see the opposite. But once we understand we're working with that midfoot plane and we have a stressor that is conditioning the rear posterior chain as well as all the tissues that are being utilized to maintain the resistance traveling on that plane, as I said, you can and you should be doing it with every kind of resistance because that is the only catalyst we as humans know for overcoming the status quo. In other words, for transformation, for changing from what is to what could be. And so some of the other things you can do is subuti. Subuti should be happening on this plane. And the movement of the sword is going to stress those tissues that are utilized in order to require the resistance to be moving up and down on that plane. What you tend to see is uh, an overbending of the knees and a shifting of the weight to the heels, which means you're not at midfoot. A lifting of the sword or the bulkhead with one's wrist or forearms, elbows, biceps, shoulders. And as you do this, for the same reasons that Ripito is, is utilizing the midfoot, is you, you're not developing this overall whole organization. You have now are only applying stress to an isolated muscle group. So when Subuti is done this way, the knees are overly bent, the pelvis is at an angle, or the feet are at an angle where the weight is shifting back to the heel, what tends to be stressed is the quadriceps. And so now you're getting stronger quads, but they don't offer you either a coordination in this organization because you weren't practicing it, and then with age, those muscles deteriorate and whatever performance gains we were able to have with them as we were younger is now not possible as we get older. But Sabuti can and should be done this way.
And when you do it this way, you can use, and we do it this way, we can, you can just use the weight of your arms. It is enough. You don't even need the bokken. Or you can have a 15-pound Indian club in your hand. It's still the same. So this is the basic model that we use to develop strength. But we're going to add to it because we have other concerns. So while the strengthening of the rear posterior chain is very relevant to coordination, dexterity, and utilization in this overall sought-after organization, it's really those all those other tissues that are being incidentally stressed by maintaining the resistance on that midfoot plane that are very important. And when it comes to developing those muscles, I find that any time or more, any time the weight is moving more off of or past through the midfoot plane, and I have to shift and organize my body to keep the resistance as it's moving, to keep the resistance actually on the midfoot plane, I am stressing those tissues more, and therefore I am generating an adaptation more readily transferable to the overall physiological organization that we're looking for. And this is where things like sabuti come in and also things like kettlebells come in. Kettlebells swing across or, or move left and right across the midfoot plane. But as it's moving and you keep the resistance plane over the midfoot, you're now conditioning all those tissues. So I highly recommend kettlebell training as well. And in our dojo, we have uh, squat racks and deadlift stations. We have room for it, but we didn't always have room for that. Um, but almost any dojo has room for kettlebells. The reason that I advocate the, the deadlift stations and the squat racks is using Ripito's empirical evidence. The greater the weight, the greater the adaptation. The greater the resistance, the greater the stress, the greater the adaptation. But then we have that caveat. We cannot generate the adaptation to such a degree that mobility and dexterity or coordination is now infringed upon. And then that's where kettlebells come in. And kettlebells are a kind of dynamic maintenance of the midfoot plane. And they do not generate in themselves the same kind of fusion adaptation you see as in these other 
barbell lifts. And so they do not infringe upon as greatly on mobility. But because it's a ratio, as they do not infringe upon mobility, they do not generate as great a strength gain adaptation as barbells. So we mix them. But we do also have, for this reason, a deviation from Ripito. And again, it just comes from my decades of experimentation and the empirical evidence that I have seen in the training of people over the decades, all with the aforementioned goals in mind for physical conditioning. So in Ripito's system, there is a gradually increasing in the amount of weight you put on. So you gradually increase the stressor so that you gradually increase the adaptation. We do not do that. We do not do that because empirically what happens is when do you know that you can no longer increase the weight or increase the stressor is usually found in failure. And empirically, the way that failure is often experienced more times than not is an injury. And we cannot afford the injury because that's going to take us out of the four to six hours of training a day. And training becomes a matter of peaks and valleys as you go from injury, injury recovery, back to training, back to failure, back to injury, back to injury recovery. And training is very haphazard. And the actual end result of performance with the art is now infringed upon, even while strength gains might be there. So what we do is we also work in fives, reps of five, following his model because we have found that to be most efficient. Heavier weights at, at that rep count do more stress adaptation than lighter weights at a higher rep count. Certain tissues respond better to sets of 10, such as the arms, the biceps, triceps, lower legs. But for these major lifts on the rear posterior chain, heavier weights at a five rep count produces more stress or produces greater adaptation more consistently. Again, no one knows why. I'll, I'll put in the call notes here a podcast with, uh, that Joe Rogan did with Pavel, and he's one of the top strength training coaches and probably the most well-read, and he's very open about it. 
So you don't have to just take my word for it. Again, I don't really care. I'm just interested in the results. And four decades plus of training has produced the results. They're repeatable and they're transferable. I'm in the ballpark. So we do do the five rep count for the lifts I mentioned. But we follow rules of um, you have to lift to the form. Again, why? Because we're interested in those tissues that are incidentally conditioned because they are incidentally stressed as you are being forced to maintain the resistance line on the midfoot as you are also stressing the rear posterior chain. So even when you tend to lift too heavy, it's very difficult to maintain the midfoot line. And as a result, you're not stressing the tissues relevant to the overall organization that we're seeking. And there's just no point in it. And then when you couple that with the fact that you are probably lifting the weight that is too heavy for you, uh, and uh, you're likely to now risk injury, and now you're not training, and now you're not going to have the required hours for performance capacity. So there, we just don't participate in it. So when we do these lifts... Um, I would say we're somewhere around 80 to, I don't know, 90% of, of one's max. And you do five sets of five. Shoulder press, deadlifts, squats. And we also tailor this further. We don't do days off. And we mimic the kind of conditioning that comes with more of a lifestyle or a pre-modern existence. Oftentimes, it's this kind of strength development is today referred to as farmer strength or old man strength. Well, they didn't go in, they don't go to work and try to set PRs, personal records. So I have an old man strength story from my father. My father worked in construction, in pool construction. And he did that all of my life. And this is a matter of lifting heavy bags of cement and moving wheelbarrows with cement and just doing that every day, eight hours plus a day for decades. 
And by the time I was in my 20s, my father was already an older man, not working anymore, who's more retired. And we were putting together a uh, heavy bag station in my backyard. And we had to dig the hole and we put the four by four in there and we put cement in the hole. And at that time, I was already lifting, you know, I was training at national, international levels. But the exercise science that I was exposed to at that time utilized more of a what today we would call a bodybuilder concept of stress and adaptation, meaning it, it was more reliant upon appearance and less reliant upon strength output. So the lifts, contrary to Ripito's system, were not geared towards those lifts that uh, spread the stress over the most tissues. So you lift in more isolated fashion. This is where you had the rise of the Nautilus machines and the universal machines and the birth of the Globo gyms and the bodybuilding craze with uh, Joe Weider and all the all those people. The physique was what counted more and then the assumption was that the physique led itself to to strength. So I was lifting in that fashion. And here we are, we're about to put this 4x4 four four in this hole. And uh, we didn't have enough cement, and we had left this, the wheelbarrow with all the cement down, further down the driveway. And again, I'm in my 20s, I've been lifting like that, I had that kind of physique, and my dad is like, hey, uh, go, get, go get the wheelbarrow, we need more cement. And I could not get that wheelbarrow up that driveway and back to him. And uh, my dad was old school, born in Texas, and I am obviously taking too long for his liking, and he's like, what's going on? And he comes down there, and he, can see, he sees me, like, almost tipping it over, you know. Just imagine someone trying to lift something that is way too heavy for them. And then he is about to go in there, and I'll be honest, my opinion was like, oh, oh man, you ain't going to lift that thing. And he just picked it up and carted it, drove it back to the back. No problem. And I was shocked. But it made me rethink. And much of my conditioning science now is based upon that. It's like, how did he, how was he able to do that? Well, today we would call that old man strength or farmer strength. And what it is is a repeated utilization of the tissues involved. He's cre creating a, a, uh, an adaptation across the entire organism. And it's done in a way, it's using the same stress adaptation model, but it's done in a way uh, a slowly over time. So when we're lifting our 80 to 90%, we're trying to duplicate somebody who is working slowly over time. So on 
ideal days, work's not getting in the way, all things are great. I look to do these this uh, resistance training, this weightlifting, this stress adaptation for strength gains. I try to do it two times a day. Each workout's about an hour. And that goes on top of all the body stuff, body art stuff, or any other kind of Aikido class, which are also mimicking this same midfoot line, rear posterior chain engagement, uh, midfoot plane, and all those incidental tissues involved with that. So when you are lifting and you're trying to do PRs and you're trying to always add five pounds every time on there and you start to have this cycle of failure, healing, injury, etc., and you're losing your uh, four to six hours, so you're losing your performance capacity, what we see or what I've seen is that when you stick to this 80 to 90% and you just do your five of five, and you can even do it twice a day, every single day, there is no injury. And you start to develop this same kind of systemic strength conditioning, which does not appear to generate the adaptation that reduces mobility and coordination. You have a more organic, holistic, natural conditioning of one's physicality. And this way you address that ratio of strength to coordination or dexterity to mobility. And then just to be sure... Each week, we make sure that we are doing suwariwaza classes to make sure we're still creating a stressor for mobility adaptation. And we even have classes where our body conditioning sessions where we're not doing the weight resistance training, we're doing mobility training. Because we're not just after strength gains. And sometimes those mobility classes we take into moments of challenge where the spirit and the mind are brought to the forefront. I think that's important. But we also do that in every single body art class. Because so far we've just been talking about the physiological aspect of performance, but performance is not a purely physical thing. And the more adverse one's conditions are within which that performance is said to have to happen, uh, 
the less physical performance is, the more mental, the more spiritual it becomes. And this is precisely why we even started a physical training regiment to our dojo membership. Because when I started in the martial arts, people were just naturally in shape. We played outside more. We fought more. We didn't need sports or gyms. You just lived the more active lifestyle. You also had more hardship in your life, more adventures, more challenges, more trials. And while some did not, it was the people that had those trials, those challenges, those people who successfully navigated them, those were the ones that sought out the challenge of Budo. And you were able to just instruct people with those two assumptions in place. You were fit and you were mentally tough and now let's do something with it. But society overall has changed. Some countries more than others and some states more than others. And in some areas, that is not who comes into your dojo. It's not the fit and mentally tough people. It's the exact opposite. It's people who recognize that they are not fit and that they are not mentally tough, but they need to become so. There seems to be two options here. As a dojo cho, you can just lie to them, pull a bait and switch on them, and say, hey, these are magic techniques. You can be who you are right now, weak and frail and fragile. And these techniques, like magic beans, will make you other. I think that's what most people do. But I cannot do it. It's immoral. And it's not honoring the gods of Budo. It's disrespectful. Instead, option two is let's make fitness and mental toughness 
not necessarily a requirement for training or for dojo membership, but a part of training and a part of dojo membership. There's a reason for this, and it's quite historical. It just makes sense at the same time for our contemporary situation, but it has always been this way. We could, for a few decades, assume it was all in place, but historically, it has always not been assumed. Warrior schools throughout history may have always started or may have more often started with fit, tough people. But the assumption has always been you ain't fit or tough enough yet. Well, we're just in the same boat. We, we may have a wider river to cross, but it is the same boat. And the reason these schools always had this boat was because performance is not a purely physiological thing. Performance has this overriding mental and spiritual aspect to it. And when you start investigating in that, you see very quickly that you can't really even train at the level where you could really work on our spiritual or mental sides relative to performance when we are weak. The weak body is known by the mind of that body. And it will enter the fray already caving. In order to train our mind and our spirit for the performance levels that are required to remain functional and operational under the conditions and the context, within the context that we already outlined, in order to train that mind and spirit, the body must have an X level amount of conditioning It's no doubt if we are weak, the same thing is going to happen, the same process. If we are physically weak and we're doing something that is exhausting, 
the mind and the body will be challenged and therefore you do have a stressor being applied and therefore you will have some level of adaptation. But that level of adaptation is still far short of the overall context in which performance needs to occur. So I've had Deshi, they get very tired or the training gets very intense and they consider it to be, to be severe. And you can see this on our videos that we post on YouTube. At a certain point, I will tell them, please pay attention to how slow we're going. Pay attention to how light this actually is. It's true subjectively from their point of view, it is quite intense. But from the level of performance, it is not. And hence, what you end up producing is not the desired for psyche or spiritual state. but delusion. The weak body is prone to delusion. This is where all of the ancient ascetic practices, yogic practices come from. Again, we know it empirically. If we look at it spiritually, the weak body does experience the stressor. The stress is applied on the mind and the spirit. But the adaptation happens not in a reconciliation of the ego, but actually in a reification of the ego. Hence the delusion and hence the inability to perform under adverse conditions that are happening at the speed of life or at the level of combat or contest against another human being. They will lack that mysterious virtue that I recently wrote about and that was noted in the story on the swordsman and the cat. In my experience, 
the weak body in its ego reification reaches a state of, let's say, endurance. It continues to experience the trial in terms of time and space, meaning if it perseveres, it perseveres because they are experiencing time passing. They have a sense of its conclusion. And this is quite opposite. from the adaptation that we are seeking where time and space erode and there only remains pure acceptance of the now. The weak body can never get to this final state. It may be challenged. It may appear to make us tough, but what we're after is not that. So historically, colloquially, This is one of the reasons giving, given for why Bodhidharma taught these martial forms to his Chinese disciples. They were too weak to hit the yogic, the yogic requirements where the sense of I drops off in the challenges to the body. So we've come here back to the beginning where for the sake of discussion we took out the mind and the spirit. But as you can see, it has to be kept in. And so on the one hand, yes, my conditioning should lend itself to this physiological organization and utilization. But on the other hand, that conditioning always has this asceticism in mind.
We have to keep it there. I do not know what Budo is without this asceticism. I suspect while it may keep the same word, the same name, Budo without this ascetic aspect is no Budo. or at least is not what I am doing. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.